This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. This is Ozarks at Large for Friday, January 20th, 2023. We're going to start this Friday with Michael Tilley, who I believe, well, I know, is with Talk Business and Politics, and I believe is somewhere in downtown Fort Smith in his car right now, correct? Yeah, just, you know, you. I'll, I'll pull over anywhere to talk to Kyle Kellums, apparently. <laughs> well, we've got plenty to talk about. Let's let's start with um, returning to a topic that we've kind of touched on from time to time. There's an update on the uh, Intermodal Project. Yes, the um, what started out as the Regional Intermodal Transportation Authority, or RETA, um, back in 2009. Of course, it's now the Western Arkansas Intermodal Authority, which doesn't have the same ring as RETA, but anyway... Um, they're kind of, they've kind of come to a point, uh, Matt Pitch, um, who was, began back in 2009 as kind of a consultant on the project. Uh, he has left, uh, he's got a job with the secretary of state's office. Remember he was, uh, was in the house of representatives rep- representing Fort Smith and then in the Arkansas Senate, he ran unsuccessfully for Arkansas treasurer, but anyway, he's leaving. It gave us kind of a a time to kind of catch up with where the project is, which is kind of a, I wouldn't call it a controversy, but there's a little bit of um, frustration, I think, with it. The effort has collected uh, a little over 3.1 million since 2009. They've obligated at least 2.9 million of that, uh, with Matt Pitch receiving 1.15 million of that, which is somewhat part of the frustration. We'll get into that. Um, over that term. And they really, uh, other than a few studies um, and a little bit of momentum in terms of kind of letting the intermodal world, so to speak, know that they're out there and interested, they don't have anything to show for. They have no physical infrastructure to show for all of that. Uh, And the funding comes from uh, four governments, uh, Crawford and Sebastian County, the city of Fort Smith, and the city of Van Buren, um, the state of Arkansas and the AEDC has put in a little over 840000 The Arkansas Department of Transportation has put in a little over 450000 So, And they ended 2022, the authority ended 2022 with a fund balance of about 208000 The conventional wisdom is that they want to continue and maybe not, I guess I should back up, part of the focus, Kyle, is they were wanting to build this intermodal type facility, intermodal port, where whether it's whether it's come in on truck or rail or barge, it could all be transferred back and forth between those different modes, even air. Uh, there's an air cargo component that they were looking at. Um, right now, the, the, those big intermodal operations, you know, there's one in Memphis, there's one on the east and west coast. There's really not um, a significant one along a river in, in the middle part of the country, I guess, other than Memphis. Hmm. Um, there are some people who think that this is not, we don't have the market size for it. And this has kind of been a, um, um, not a futile effort, but they could have better spent the money. There are folks, for example, who believe that the money could have been best spent on real infrastructure. You know, Marty Shell talks about if he had $3 million, what he could have done to develop something that might look close to an intermodal yard that they're talking about. So, um, but Sasha Grist, who's with the Western Arkansas Planning and Development District, they've been managing, uh, administrating, I guess is the best word, being the administrator for the uh, Western Arkansas Intermodal Authority. Um, They're, and they're working with the board. They're not sure yet they want to hire a new director. What they've recently decided is to kind of step back, figure out, what they want to be, come up with kind of a new five-year plan. Some of the board members have even said, yeah, we probably need to back off this effort to build this big, large intermodal port and figure out what are some more realistic things we can do. So um, it'll be interesting to see what they do next. Uh, again, it's, um, you know, had over 3 million, spent over 2.9 million. I know in terms of infrastructure, maybe that's not a lot of money, um, but it, it is for um, this, what has kind of been a small study project. So 
ideally something something good will come out of all that. Um, but we'll um, we'll be staying tuned to what Sasha and the Intermodal Authority Board decide to do next. Is it fair to say that this is sort of going back to square one with this, or or can you mark that there was progress and there has been some things figured out? Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't call it going back to square one. You know, they've got they've developed good relationships with a lot of mm. intermodal companies. These consultants, for example, Sasha, um, who I've had some pretty good conversations with. She's, um, I think she's really focused on um, that. There can be something good come out of all this. I appreciate her attitude. You know, one of the things they're doing here. In the next few months, they're going to, uh, and it's a it's a federal agency I had never heard of, Kyle, and, and I probably ought to be embarrassed about that a little bit, but it's the Maritime Administration of the U.S. Department of Transportation. They um, do a lot to provide grant, provide support for um, transporta- maritime transportation infrastructure, and so they've developed a relationship with them. They're going to have some of their key folks in tentatively uh, for April 12th roundtable. It's part of their effort to become a, to receive what's called a preferred designation that moves them up the list in terms of being qualified for grants and that type of thing. So um, that's, there are several things that they're trying to do to move the ball forward. That's one of them that has some promise. There is this thought right now that everything is politicized and I don't know if everything's politicized, but we're seeing libraries politicized more and more. And I'm sure the folks at the Crawford County Library understand what I'm saying. Yeah, and you know, it's not just Crawford County. For example, right. we had a story a couple months ago where in Jonesboro, the Craighead County Library System, um, folks in that community voted to cut the millage in half. Those folks said it was because of they thought the library had too much money, but it was clearly because the library system there um, <laughs> I guess had the audacity to put up LGBTQ books and, and displays and the very conservative Christian element of Craighead County just couldn't abide by that. And so they cut their funding. That's similar to what is brewing, although there's not a group calling for a funding cut, but that's similar to what's happening in Crawford County library system um, the library folks there um, had an LGBTQ display, which a lot of libraries do around the country, uh, because last I checked, uh, being gay is not illegal. Um, so it's just another demographic in society that libraries are supposed to, you know, cater to um, part of their public call, part of their public job. But there is a group, Dr. Jeffrey Hamby, Hamby and his wife, Tammy, who oddly enough, the Crawford County judge put Tammy as chair of the library board system. But anyway, they um, are part of this River Valley Elders group, which they are Christian conservative nationalists to the core. Um, they just have trouble with all of this. Um, these LGBTQ books, they say that, that they have no place in the library system. And so they're making life hard for Deidre, and I'm going to probably mispronounce her last name, but I think it's Grismala. Mm-hmm. She's the library director. Um, she's new to the library. And so, for example, recently, um, Tammy Hamby tried to quiz Deidre on some spending. Fortunately, some of the other library board members were able to shut Tammy down and essentially say, look, this spending was all board approved. Most of it was approved before Deidre got here. Uh, but um, I, I guess that the gist of our reporting is that this, this is an ongoing controversy, unfortunately, and um, we'll see, you know, who wins out. Crawford County is a very politically conservative, very religious county. Um, and I would not be surprised if it goes the way of what happened in Crawford County where, I mean, excuse me, Craighead County, where they're, that, um, they were punished in the Craighead County. Um, several top leaders of that library system ended up, uh, they were either fired or yeah. just left, resigned. 
because they didn't want to put up with it. So, um, again, just, you know, as you said, a politicized unnecessarily probably, but it's a, uh, politicized, um, effort to ban books or to ban a certain, um, type of, uh, demographic from having any say or having any, um, part of the library system. So we'll see, we'll see where this goes. And we've talked about pay raises for uh, a segment of Fort Smith city, uh, personnel. How's that uh, turned out? Yeah. So we've been talking about it for what seems like a couple of years now, but yes, the board has finally approved this very broad, very aggressive, uh, police department pay raise 23, almost 24% across the board. Uh, also similar, um, uh, pay raises for firefighters, um, some some pay raises for non-uniformed city personnel. So, um, and all of it. Well, the, uh, the a lot of the police pay raise was, and fire department pay raises were supported by uh, a tax increase the voters approved. So that's a uh, something that kind of had to happen to to meet that obligation. But um, it's good to see, especially for the police and fire, it's been very competitive to try to keep people employed in those positions. That's a lot of hard work, a lot of dangerous work. There are fire departments and police departments around the country and around the state that are paying more. So this will allow Fort Smith to be competitive in terms of hiring good people for fire and police. All right. Finally, I got to know, what do you think, uh, your Dallas Cowboys and the San Francisco 49ers? Well, I, you know, I, I didn't think they were, the Cowboys were going to beat Tom Brady and they did. So, I'm going to carry that optimism on, uh, even though Brock Purdy is just knocking it out of the ballpark. I'm going to still root for my Cowboys. Michael Tilley talks with us almost every Friday. We'll do it again next Friday. You can read about what we've talked about other than the Niners and the Cowboys at talkbusiness.net. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much. You're welcome, sir. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus on-site fitness facilities. Butterfieldtrailvillage.org for more. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Before we slide into the weekend, let's catch up on a few of the news items from the previous few days. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders renewed her call for education reform in a rally at the state capitol yesterday. The governor has said she hopes to tackle a slew of educational issues in her first term, including workforce readiness, teacher accountability, and allowing state dollars to help fund students' education in private, religious, or charter schools. During the rally, hosted by the advocacy group Americans for Prosperity, Governor Sanders said she plans to make Arkansas a national leader in education reform. We have to make sure that we are focused on parental empowerment. Empowering our parents is one of the most critical things that we can do when it comes to a child's success in education. This is not about school choice. This is about parental choice. Governor Sanders signed three executive orders relating to education on her first day in office, including one banning critical race theory from being taught in schools. Jenny Diaz, executive director for, of the nonprofit for AR people. Listen to the governor's remarks. She says, while parents should be free to choose which school their children attend, the state shouldn't be expected to pay for their private school education. We believe that school choice um, is about, you know, what public school best fits your family. Um, we don't believe in taking public tax dollars and putting them into um, vouchers for families that can send their kids to private schools or to charter schools, especially when there are a lot of Arkansas students who um, don't have access to private schools or charter schools. Leaders in the State House and Senate have said they plan to address the governor's policy proposals in a large legislative package. The governor says that's expected to be introduced in the legislature in the coming weeks. A bill regulating drag shows in Arkansas made its way out of committee yesterday with no lawmakers voting against it. The Senate City, County, and Local Affairs Committee heard debate on Senate Bill 43. If passed, it would force any performance involving cross-dressing to be classified as an adult-oriented business if the performance appealed to 
purient interests. Lawmakers insist the bill's language would mean a performance would have to be sexual for it to violate the law. Holly Dixon, executive director of the ACLU of Arkansas, told the senators that the word purient could be interpreted by courts to mean a wide variety of artistic performance. Jerry Cox, president of the Family Council, was the only member of the public to speak in favor of the bill. His remarks were followed by a group of the bill's detractors, including a drag queen named Athena Sinclair. Before the vote, Senator Gary Stubblefield, who sponsored the legislation, said the bill was written to protect children. He quoted the Book of Deuteronomy from the Bible and said he does not believe men and women should wear each other's clothes. The committee approved the bill unanimously. It now goes to the full Senate for a vote. A coalition of legal organizations and nonpartisan policy organizations is asking Governor Sanders to invest taxpayer money in what the group's term modern proven means to address needs of families and communities. In a press release, Zachary Crow, the executive director of Decarcerate, writes that talk of expanding prisons in an attempt to lower crime rates and address overcrowding in prisons and jails shows a lack of imagination on the part of legislators. Arkansas State University is moving forward with plans to start a new college of veterinary medicine. It would operate on a three-year model with the first years of coursework done on campus before moving on to residencies, internships, and specialty placements. ASU Faculty Senate President Ed Salo says he hopes to keep students in Arkansas for their veterinary education. Some of our brightest students have had to leave the state to fulfill their dreams of becoming a veterinary. And I've gotten to know them, and I've gotten to see their love of the region, of the agriculture, and the farming that they've grown up with. And we've had literally hundreds of students over the years leave Arkansas. This is one of our problems. And if they go somewhere, a lot of times they do not return. And this is a loss for not only the region, but the state. ASU is the second higher education institution in Arkansas to announce plans for a veterinary school. Lyon College is expected to pursue accreditation for its dental and veterinary schools in Little Rock sometime this year, with plans to start offering classes as early as 2024. The Museum of Native American History in Bentonville is changing its hours of operation. As of January 31st, Mona will be open Tuesday through Saturday from 11 a.m. until 5 p.m. Group tours and school visits will be by reservation only and must be scheduled between 9 and 11. And local ballet dancers can sign up for auditions and master classes with the Royal Winnipeg Ballet School Professional Division. The master classes are free and in Star Theater at Walton Arts Center Monday from 2.45 until 4.15. Auditions will take place Tuesday and will be held for the ballet school's three full-time professional division programs. While walk-ups for Monday's classes are accepted until an hour before they start, dancers are encouraged to pre-register and see a list of audition requirements. We have a link at today's Ozarks at Large page at KUAF.com to learn more. Walton Arts Center is one of only two U.S. locations hosting these events. This is Ozarks at Large. Guitarist Virginia Luque and vocalist Jubilant Sykes have both performed around the world, and at times here, too. Jubilant was a performer in the opening year of the Walton Arts Center. Virginia has performed in both Fayetteville and Fort Smith. Individually, throughout their careers, they've performed on six different continents, in Carnegie Hall, the Kennedy Center, Radio City Music Hall, the Hollywood Bowl, and the Metropolitan Opera House. Both are represented by Dave Thomas, a Fayetteville resident, and both have been on Ozarks at Large a few times over the past 30 years. But until this week, they'd never worked together. They were on stage earlier this week in St. Louis, and they'll be at Butterfield Trail Village Sunday afternoon. They were also in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio with me this week. Virginia Luque says she's wanted to collaborate with Jubilant Sykes for a long time. It was something I wanted to do for a very long time. But I do respect my colleagues, and uh, I do respect very much Christopher Parkinin, and he was working with him at that time. And uh, I appreciated the collaboration they had for a very long time. And I said, when it's my time, I will be happy to do it. Because mm. uh, working with him, uh, with Jubilant, uh, was, was something that was always in my mind. Mm. Mm. Yes. That is really, that is that moves me. Thank you. I Thank didn't do you. it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
That's very sweet. But uh, it's true. Uh, so I, I wanted to do different music too because it's uh, very refreshing for me to just have some, some music that um, I was not familiar to, but it was, uh, I heard very much the music, but I never played it. So it was a good direction, try to do something different. Mm. What was the discussion like doing the, coming up with the program, deciding what you'll perform both in St. Louis and, and Fayetteville? Well, I assumed early on that it was I was only maybe doing like two to three tunes. I didn't realize I was doing the program. So um, I was cool with that. <laughs> and then... Um, Virginia basically said, no, we need a little more than two to three tunes. Yeah, well, so. that was told, too. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so. We, we needed to do something more, uh, you know, like something balanced, like two uh, artists collaborating. I didn't want me, uh, him to be only the guest artist. I want him to just incorporate more of his talent into this. Mm. So did you exchange concepts, ideas through text or email or... Text, email, uh, we spoke a couple of times on the phone, and I had some rep. We had things transcribed for guitar and voice, um, some that I just started learning, and then I pulled some of the Portuguese and uh, had some Spanish things that I'd done before and had to resurrect them, put them back in the voice and the body again, and here we are. Is there a relationship between guitar and voice that's unusual or unique when it comes to two instruments? Uh, I'll just speak on vocally. It's probably the most um, intimate, but it's also the most, well, because of the intimacy, most vulnerable. So vocally... Um, you can't hide, whereas with an orchestra, you can um, you can hide in a different way. The voice is dominant, but it's not predominant. Where with guitar and voice, I think the guitar is very much like a voice. So it, it sort of functions with the vibration of the strings, the same the vibration of the chord. So there's sort of a a dance between the two, but you are very exposed. So that's probably the most challenging part. The guitar isn't, there's no place really for the guitar to hide in this either, is there? Well, that's what I was thinking, yes. Uh, it's just not, uh, we can't hide anything, you know. I mean, it's just the way it is, boom, that's uh, whatever you're doing. But I think the guitar and voice always fits very well. Uh, it's, uh, I've been doing voice on guitar for a very long time and soprano, mezzo-soprano. I did tenor, but I never did uh, his range of voice. And, and I thought that uh, I was missing that too, and uh, besides his artistry. But, but I thought that I feel so comfortable uh, following a singer. Mm. They don't have to actually think about me. I think about them, mm. and I think about breathing. I'm very good with breathing, and I just keep listening. Oh, breathing, breathing mm -hmm. here, breathing there, mm -hmm. which is so important for mm -hmm. a singer. Mm -hmm. So, and uh, so I always say I follow, and that's the important thing to follow. And if I, and, and those are the important points for me to just mark the breathing points, and, and that is what makes a good combination and not only just for voice it's a, you can do it with violin or you can do it with any other instrumentalist and you feel the sensation of the breathing the the inhale and all that and that is where you have to really match you know and her being a conductor too that would that also enhances maybe that is part of my yeah, yeah, yeah. my desire Regina let me ask you about the guitar you're you're holding what what can you tell me about that well, this guitar, I went to visit Manuel Velázquez in Orlando, Florida. He had his workshop. He passed away in 2014. So I went to him in 2004, and uh, at the end, uh, in December, close to December uh, to 2005. And he had a few guitars there, 
I went there just to bring one guitar of his and for him to really check. And he said, oh, yes, I do remember the client. The customer was this and this and that and this and that. And, and I was telling him I was very uncomfortable with, with part of the neck because he, the client asked for, for the neck a little bit uh, more bolder. I said, I don't need so much wood in the back. But anyway, so that was what we were talking about. I love the sound. Then it turned out that I sold it to one of my students. But this guitar, this guitar, I saw it hanging in the wall. And, he's, and, and I said, that guitar is beautiful. And he said, that's yours. Hmm. No, no, no gift. You know, you can't ask for a gift. But um, what happened was that he made it for me, and he didn't tell me. Oh, wow. So, of course, I had to pay it. Yeah. That's the difference. But, uh, but it was okay. I paid the guitar because uh, he had the label, everything. And he said, I, I made it thinking about you. Wow. And so that's why he made this beautiful, beautiful. instrument. And, um, and uh, when I played it, then I didn't feel so bad about the other guitar. <laughs> and uh, and that just, I thought it was perfect. So I bought it instantly. Mm -hmm. so. I love that you saw it before right. you knew it was, right. it was for you. Right. Yeah. Yes, it was right. hanging in the wall. It was drying and, and, and the, the strings were on. And he said, you could try. And then when I looked at through the sound hole, he had my name on it. Oh, my gosh. I said, well, this is mine. Wow. <laughs> Prepare your budget. <laughs> <laughs> I have good news and I have bad news. Yeah, yes. right. <laughs> so that's I have to go great. to the bank, and that's it. <laughs> that's great. Well, you graciously offered when you first came in the studio to play just a little bit. Just a little bit. Okay. If yeah. Whatever you would like. Yeah, I think I'm going to play uh, Danza Brasileira by Jorge Marín. Fantastic. Thank you so much. My All right. So you'll be performing together in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Then you'll perform on the 22nd here in Fayetteville. Can you just 
give us a hint of one or two of the pieces? That, I mean, not perform, but just an idea of what we will hear? It's very eclectic. I'm doing some, like I said, Spanish songs. I'm doing Portuguese. I'm doing some old American songbooks like Gershwin and um, spirituals. So it's very eclectic. It's, uh, as they say, something for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Virginia Luque and Jubilant Sykes will perform together Sunday afternoon at 3 at Butterfield Trail Village in Fayetteville, just their second ever public collaboration. Butterfield Trail has announced they have about 25 tickets at $20 each available to the public for the concert. So if you'd like to get in on this, get a ticket, you can send an email to rstamps at btvillage.org. That's rstamps at btvillage.org. Virginia Luque and Jubilant Sykes came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio Tuesday. How can a shy country boy improve his chances with a much classier woman, especially when she's set to marry a flashy military man? Well, a little liquid courage might help. I'm Deborah Lou Harder for the Metropolitan Opera. Join me for Donizetti's delightful L'Elysir d'Amore, the elixir of love, our next live Saturday broadcast from the Met. Soprano Golda Schultz and tenor Javier Camarena star as the adorable will-they-won't-they couple Adina and Nemorino. Baritone Davide Luciano is the swaggering Sergeant Belcore. And baritone Ambrogio Maestri is the dubious Dr. Dulcamara. Michele Gamba conducts. Don't miss the humor and tenderness of the elixir of love. Saturday, live on the Toll Brothers Metropolitan Opera International Radio Network. You can hear a live broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera tomorrow at noon on KUAF2. That's our 24-hour day classical music station that you can hear for free on your digital radio at KUAF.com and by asking your smart speaker to please play KUAF2. This is Ozarks at Large. Imagine someone wearing an Oxford shirt, chinos, and loafers. The first image that pops in your head is likely going to be someone who looks like they just walked off the campus of Princeton University. Preppy, or Ivy League style, gets its name from, well, the style of clothing popularized by Ivy League college students in the post-World War II era. But podcaster Avery Truffleman explores the globalization of this 20th century fashion trend that has lasted well into the 21st century with her show, Articles of Interest. I spoke to Avery and start the conversation with the seminal work of the Japanese book, Take Ivy. Well, the story of Take Ivy is really long. It runs throughout the the series. But basically, Take Ivy is a book, a coffee table book. And I think I first encountered it at a J. Crew in the Obama era preppy J. Crew, you know, like 2012. And it's very strange. It was it was published in uh, 1965, and it's images of young men on American Ivy League campuses, multiple campuses. They go to Dartmouth and Brown and Princeton and Harvard and Yale, and you see them uh, going to crew practice and lounging on the quad. They're always sort of in motion, like traipsing across the quad. And then the weird thing you realize is that the book was made originally in Japanese for a Japanese audience. And it's this like anthropological study of what American men are wearing on these campuses. And they have all these notes like, oh, the campus is so big. A lot of them use bikes. And like, isn't it interesting how they're not wearing socks with their loafers? Like, what a wild thing. And I mean, it's by many in menswear circles, Take Ivy is considered sort of the Bible of preppy clothes. It's like, oh, this is This is sort of the document because it's done in this anthropological way that no American would ever think to do. Like, you know, it's it's so obvious, like kids on a college campus. Why would you document it so so thoroughly? So because no one else had sort of bothered to do it, this has become sort of the de facto example of like, oh, when you want to do preppy right, look at Take Ivy. But the story of Take Ivy is like so much weirder and it's like sort of half staged and it also once had a movie and like an accompanying magazine it's like it was functionally 
Tegaivi was a piece of propaganda by a Japanese clothing company to convince everyone that Americans still dressed that way, even in 1965, when they were starting to really not dress that way at all. And that's like the succinct version of what Tegaivi is. And even that's like kind of long. You know, I think when Americans think of the 1960s in America, we think of the hippie area. We think of we, we think of tie-dye. We think of long hair. We don't think of people in, you know, Henleys yeah. and chinos and loafers, right? Right. And, and, that's, and that's what is being portrayed in Japan is that this is how Americans dress and it's cool and this is how we should dress, right? Well, it's interesting because, you know, this is the funny thing about studying the history of fashion is that we think that fashion divides up, you know, in our minds. We organize them into these neat sort of decades, but it's so amorphous and it's so personal. So in a weird way, like, yeah, people were still wearing like Henleys and and chinos into the 60s, into the mid 60s, really. But it was about to change. It was about to really, really explode. And the way they were dressing was really different than the way they were dressing in the 50s. But yeah, basically in Take Ivy, they were sort of fudging it and like pretending, you know, they were selectively, I think they were going to like the Young Republicans Club. Like they were finding the bastions of places that were still very committed to the preppy look or then as as it was known as uh, the Ivy look. But then, you know, a few months later after campus, like the Vietnam War was going to break out, like the hippie was about, like they caught the last vestige of uh, widespread preppy college dressing. So that's another, I mean, that doesn't minimize the greatness of the document. It's still an incredible, it's an incredible book still that they like captured this very last gasp of like mid-century collegiate culture. Although you never explicitly say this in the podcast, it's notable that Ivy and Preppy, a style named for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant college kids at Princeton, and has long survived as long as it has due in large part to non-white Americans, right? Whether it's uh, Kensuke Ishizu in Japan, an Ashkenazi Jewish fashion designer in the Bronx like Ralph Lauren, or a rapper like Raekwon, Ivy continued to stay cool over generations due to its reiterations, right? And women, uh, that's a huge yeah. thing the androgyny of preppy clothes was like Brooks Brothers didn't have a department for women so women just went in and like bought from the boys section I mean that was the amazing thing that all of these like that's the thing I was expecting in this series to be going to New England to interview like people named Biffy and Kennebunkport but no the story is very New York it's very black it's very Jewish it's very Japanese and I think it's just because the style is so, like, it's, it's so easy to steal and take and morph. And so many groups took it and made it their own. And not even one time, like multiple times, especially if you think about the way that black musicians took on Ivy. I mean, it happened in the 60s with, like, Miles Davis and the Modern Jazz Quartet and John Coltrane. You can see them wearing these, like, Oxford cloth button-down shirts making them look awesome. And then it happened again in the 90s and late 80s where you see like rappers and yeah, as you said, uh, Wu-Tang taking on Ralph Lauren clothes and again, wearing them in this totally new way and bringing it relevance and making it cool. And also, I mean, it's interesting. There's a perfect music metaphor with both of them because the criticism that was leveled against these musicians is like, oh, you're trying to look white. And the example that Jason Jules, the author of the book Take Ivy, the phenomenal book Take Ivy, he was like, no, it's it's in the same way that when John Coltrane covered My Favorite Things, he wasn't trying to make a Broadway musical. He was taking something and doing it in his own way, in the same way that, you know, hip hop artists take a song and sample it. It's all about, like, the mixing and the blending. Avery Truffleman is the host of Articles of Interest. You can hear more of our conversation Sunday morning on Weekend, Ozarks at Large. Articles of Interest is available now wherever you listen to podcasts. It's a Friday edition of Ozarks at Large, so that means we get to talk with Becca Martin-Brown, Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette, about what we can do with our spare time over the next few days. Becca, welcome back. Spare time. Spare time. What a funny phrase. <laughs> you want to define that? How about I could say... See, you what, don't know either. <laughs> no. What we're all going to do to be entertained. How's that? Okay, I'll All go right. with that. Very good. So do you remember 1982? Sophomore year of college. I remember it very well. 
Okay. I have not much memory of 1982 and zero memory of a film called Tootsie. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. But apparently it doesn't matter because the musical version that's at the Walton Art Center doesn't seem to have a lot to do with the movie. Right. I mean, the movie was set in the world of daytime soap operas. I think they've adapted it to the world of musical theater. And I think there's some other updates. Well, and they talk a lot about in the... Our reporter, Monica Hooper, wrote about it, previewed it. And they talk a lot about how it's a, it's been revamped to really be a love letter to the theater. Yeah. This guy has to play a woman, you know, pretend to be a woman to get cast in a show. Right. That, and, that is the same as what sort of the movie's basis was. Right. But it apparently makes a good deal more sense. Mm. Set in musical theater. Sure. And it's funny. What Monica wrote about was that what you see on stage is like the tip of an iceberg of what's going on backstage, which people who have worked in theater know. The lead character has eight wigs per show. The ensemble has 70 wigs in the show. On top of all the wigs, there are 12 costume changes with the shortest change happening in under 30 seconds. They compared it to NASCAR when you pull off into the pit and all these things happen. Right. Because the actor comes off stage and just stands there. He does nothing. Oh, okay. And dressers take everything off, put everything back on, and shove him back out on the stage. They have three traveling wardrobe people, and they hire 14 people in each city to work as dressers. Oh, they hire people in that city. So there's someone from Northwest Arkansas who's a dresser. The show continues tonight at 8, tomorrow at 2 and 8, and 2 o'clock on Sunday at the Walton Art Center, and tickets start at $41. And then we're going to go outside on Beaver Lake, because we haven't talked much about this this year. I'm guessing you're talking about Eagle Tours. I am. Usually we talk about it every week, because they do it Saturday and Sunday all winter. But this is a super cool thing. You go out to Rocky Branch Marina at 3 o'clock on a Saturday or Sunday. you got to pre-register and pay over the phone by calling Hobbs State Park. You get on a pontoon boat, and you go see eagles. Lasts about 90 minutes, and you're going to see eagles this time of year. You're, you just are. You can find out more by calling Hobbs State Park at 789-5000. Or you could just go out there on Saturday because they're having wonders of winter wildlife. That's right. I talked to a fairly new park interpreter. I think he's been there four years, Chris Pistol, who says that he really wants people to understand that winter is a great time to come to Hobbs State Park because it's not hot. It's not sticky. There aren't any ticks. There isn't any poison ivy. And you can see what he calls the bones of the land, the hills and the valleys that make up the Ozarks. Because the leaves are all gone, and you got a better, further view. From 9 to 11 tomorrow, you can do Birds and Breakfast, which is an educational program where they catch winter birds. Experts catch, ornithologists catch winter birds in what they call mist nets. And then they talk about the bird, and they band it, and they turn it loose. Then from 11.15 to noon, you can celebrate Eagle Awareness Month and the Bald Eagle with photographer Mike Martin's program of eagle images. From noon to three, there are tabletop learning stations where you can make an eagle mask, make a pine cone bird feeder, do squirrel crafts, talk about bald eagles, talk about mammals that live at the park, talk about winter birds and bird feeding, and talk about winter survival strategies which includes frogs that freeze almost solid till spring, which I think is fascinating. They slow down their heart rate or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to join that group. <laughs> and then from 1 to 145, they're doing a hike, a quarter-mile hike on the Ozark Plateau Trail to talk about squirrels, which many people curse at their bird feeders, but they're really important in a forest ecosystem because they plant a lot of trees. I've got a dog that would be very interested in that part of... Wonders of wildlife, let me tell you. (laughs) So this is all free. And then you can go get a snack, a late afternoon snack, and come back because at 530, the Sugar Creek Astronomical Society is going to do a lecture and then a night viewing. 
Yeah, and even if you don't have a telescope, uh, there will be some provided for you. And if you need something to do tonight and don't want to have to make a choice, 7 o'clock tonight, Bruce and Eureka Springs, the latest issue of Emerge, which is the online literary magazine for the Writers' Colony at Gary Hollow, is being released. And some of the writers in this issue are going to read from their work. That's all I got. That's plenty. That's plenty. Becca Martin-Brown is the Features Editor at the Northwest Arkansas Democrat Gazette. Thank you, Becca. Known for songs like Pardon Me, Wish You Were Here, and Nice to Know You, alt-rock group Incubus comes to the Walmart Amp in Rogers this summer with special guests Coheed and Cambria on Friday, May 26th. Tickets are on sale now at amptickets.com. Washington Regional's Her Health Clinic is committed to empowering all women by giving them the care and resources they need to take control of their own health. Gynecology services, prenatal care, childbirth, infertility treatments, and more available at Her Health Clinic, located in Washington Regional's Women and Infant Center in Fayetteville. WRegional.com slash HerHealth to learn more. This is Ozarks at Large with me via Zoom is Courtney Lanning back to talk about a new movie. Courtney, first time we've done this, talk about a new movie, in about a month. It has been a while. I'm, I'm glad to be back and ready to talk about a new film with you, though. Of course, we did talk about your 10 favorite movies of 2022. This week, we're talking about the movie When You're Finished Saving the World. Think there's a chance it will end up on your list in December? I don't think so. Um, <laughs> it is a good movie. I wouldn't put it in my top 10, which, you know, to be fair, it's January. Tell me about When You're Finished Saving the World, because... This is not a title I had heard. It's from a studio called A24. And I think that they are kind of the saviors of Hollywood right now because they are just churning out all these original hits um, without relying on the endless myriad of reboots and sequels and so forth and so on. Um, this is the studio that brought us The Green Knight and Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is people who listened last week will know was my favorite movie of 2022. This is A24's first offering of 2023, and it stars Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard from Stranger Things. They are definitely um, the highlight of this film. They give some pretty powerful performances, and, you know, they shine in the roles they're given, uh, even if they are so dedicated to those roles that it makes some scenes a little hard to watch. The story is very simple. This is a coming-of-age drama, uh, Finn Wolfhard, while they still have teen years left in him <laughs> and can get him on camera looking like a teenager, uh, he is a high schooler who has a big following on social media and he plays live songs that he writes for them every week. And that's how he earns his money. His mother, played by Julian Moore, um, runs a shelter for survivors of domestic abuse. And she wishes that her son had some loftier goals than just being a musician. And the whole movie is just about their disconnect uh, because they don't, they don't get along at all. Now, uh, a teen son and the mother not getting along is pretty par for the course, I understand, for parents in life. But this one takes it about 10 steps further. What they don't get from their relationship with each other, they start looking for in other people. So Finn Wolfhard is trying to get the attention of this girl at school because she's looking, he's looking for positive affirmation and recognition of his talent that he's not getting from home. He wants to impress this girl. And Julianne Moore, uh, when a teenage boy comes to stay in the domestic abuse mm -hmm. shelter, um, sorry, the survivor of domestic abuse shelter, she immediately takes a liking to him and scarily enough tries to turn him into a surrogate son of sorts. And they both push their roles to the extremes as they burn bridges, not just with each other, but with the new people they're trying to forge connections with. Well, if you say that Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard's performances are the highlights of the film, what, what dampens this to make it only a kind of good movie? So while Julianne Moore and Finn Wolfhard play the mother and son of the role, the father in the movie is played by J.O. Sanders. And he's completely wasted, not in a drunken fashion, just he's underutilized. I think he's in maybe about 
three or four scenes in the whole movie, he doesn't do anything. He's there to grumble and uh, complain and uh, read books in the background. And it, I feel like that's just criminal misuse of his talent as an actor. Uh, he could be lifted right out of the story and the narrative would not change one ounce. Mm. Um, and that's not his fault. That's the writing's fault. Uh, it just, it didn't give him much to do. Uh, anything else you liked about it? Yes. Um, the, the film score complements the raw emotions and the themes of this movie perfectly because this is a very raw movie in terms of, you know, the emotions and the feelings displayed by these characters who are just missing the olive branches that they keep offering each other and as a result have this tumultuous life. Um, it feels to me as though both of these characters are eternally lonely despite the fact that they live under the same roof together. And, you know, the, the soundtrack for this movie complements that immensely. I know that January is usually sort of a dormant time. You don't throw out the big blockbusters or the Oscar hopefuls. Anything else coming out this week? Uh, two other movies. One is a mystery thriller called Missing. About a, I believe it's a mother who goes missing while she is on vacation in Colombia. And I think her, her daughter is trying to find her. And then uh, the other one is a prequel. Um, to a film starring Hugh Jackman that came out a couple years ago uh, called The Father. This new one is called The Son. All right, and your full review of When You're Finished Saving the World can be found in today's Arkansas Democrat Gazette. What do you want to talk about next week? Next week I'll be reviewing uh, a rare offering, a new Eddie Murphy movie. He doesn't make any mm. anymore. But he has a new one coming out with Jonah Hill called You People, and I will be here to talk with you about it. Courtney, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me, Kyle. In the background is composer and pianist Elaine Mallet performing Prepare to Stop. And I'm Robert Ginsberg, your host for Shades of Jazz. On this edition of the show, we will hear more from Elaine, as well as Elio Villafranca, Antonio Adolfo, Oscar Peterson, and much more. Tune in this Friday and Saturday for Shades of Jazz right here on KUAF. Shades of Jazz, tonight from 10 until midnight, then tomorrow from 11 a.m. until 1 p.m. on KUAF3. KUAF3 offers encore broadcasts of our locally produced music programs throughout the weekend. Programs like Shades of Jazz, The Pick and Post, and the KUAF Vinyl Hour. You can find a full schedule of those encore broadcasts right now at KUAF.com. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Piney Creek. Contributors today included Michael Tilley, Becca Martin-Brown, and Courtney Lanning. Additional contributions today provided by our partner stations, KSU in Jonesboro and KUAR in Little Rock. I crossed Piney Creek uh, this week. On a, on, on a boat? No. On a, no, on a car. In a car. In a car, on a bridge. Okay. Uh, if I remember correctly, it's uh, between Dean and Middleton. Yeah, that Piney sounds Creek. right. Yeah. That's, that's where I remember it. Being. I... <laughs> I talked to uh, the brand new owners of Carroll County Newspapers who have uh, purchased it from a national chain and it's, uh, you know, locally owned again. You got to love that. I do. And I talked to the three owners and uh, we'll hear that next week on Ozarks at Large. Also next week, we're going to hear your story about what are school vouchers? Yeah, uh, it's not quite as simple as uh, as it sounds and it's a lot more complicated than I think any of us really expect. So. It would be a really interesting story. All right. That and much more coming up next week on a full week of brand new editions of Ozarks at Large. I'll be with you Sunday morning at 9 with Weekend Ozarks at Large. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. What was that look? I don't know. Okay. Uh, Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you.